Welcome to the Podium and Panel Podcast. Uh, good afternoon, Your Honors. What's at the end of this case? How did this come about? Are you in the pay of the Microsoft Corporation? Start with the text of the Second Amendment. Your Honor, I, I, I think that that could be viewed as political, but that, that would be... How about the First Amendment? No, Your Honor, I don't, I don't think the First Amendment... You're out again. Still out. I think we're all in Mexico. This is Dan Cotter in today's episode 10. We will see how personal experiences of the judges come into play. The first case we will discuss today is Katz versus Hartz, a legal malpractice case. Last week we discussed and covered a medical malpractice case and mentioned we would cover this Illinois First District case today. The second case is Zuniga versus Major League Baseball, one in which the Illinois Appellate Court First District will decide whether the trial court was correct to deny a motion to compel arbitration that was triggered by an arbitration clause on the back of a baseball ticket. Or was it on the back of the baseball ticket? <laughs> well, there was reference to it, and there was a small reference to arbitration, but that's uh, we'll get into the meat of that. A very, in- very interesting oral argument that took place. Yep. The third case we'll discuss is American Bankers Insurance Company versus Robert Shockley Jr., another insurance coverage case that Pat and I will discuss. It was recently argued before the Seventh Circuit, and it's an insurance coverage case concerning whether there is coverage under a policy of insurance that the insurer argued only applied to the specific premises. As noted, judges have experiences and backgrounds they bring to the bench, and we'll talk about in each of these three cases some of the actual discussion that took place during oral arguments about those experiences. Uh, One retired Seventh Circuit judge, Richard Posner, would often, in addition to life experience that he would bring to his decisions, he would at times go to scenes of accidents. And in one case in 2014, in chambers, he donned and doffed equipment that poultry workers were required to wear to show that their claims, uh, it took as long as 15 minutes to change, were not true. Uh, Pat, thoughts on that case and what Judge Diane Wood thought about his approach to that case? Thanks, Dan. Uh, Judge Wood, in her dissent, was, to use her word, startled that uh, of the procedure that was employed by uh, Judge Posner and that one of their one of her colleagues, I can't remember which one, joined Judge Posner in that majority decision. Um, he conducted his law clerks conducted an experiment that that had to show that it didn't take as long. This was an FLSA case, so a Fair Labor Standards Act case about payments, about overtime pay, and the time it took for them to don and dox this equipment. And they claimed it was 15 or 20 minutes, and the employer's like, it took three minutes. And Judge Posner took a shortcut and said, well, I'm going to have my clerks figure this out. <laughs> and Judge Wood said, hold it now. It's not just the time it takes to don and dox. You got to go to the special room. You got to leave the special room. You got to put on your clothes. You gotta, it's not just that. It's not just the time it takes to put on the equipment. So maybe they were right. I don't know. That's why we have district courts. That's what they're supposed to figure out. Remand the case and have them figure it out. Judge Posner and the majority didn't have any of that. But I think this is also an example of, as we said last time, the circuit courts in the federal system have a bit of a free hand. It's very unlikely that the Supreme Court would uh, review a, a decision like this. They are not a court of review for error. They are a court of review for the purposes of policy. And that applies whether you're talking about the United States Supreme Court or you're talking about the Supreme Court of Illinois. They have got bigger fish to fry whether, whether there was a mistake in a particular case. And that's why the questions always are, why did they take this case? They are very rarely, outside of the death penalty context, outside of the life imprisonment context, of course, death penalty doesn't exist anymore in Illinois, but outside of the life imprisonment or long prison sentence, they are, in criminal context generally, in the civil context, they are trying to make policy. And they are less interested in what is going to happen in a particular case. Um, and this is very much telling about that. And that'll come up again when we talk about our rule of the week this week, Dan, to preview coming attraction. That's, that's correct. And uh, one of the interesting things when, when judge Posner after, uh, or around the time he was retiring, he, he wrote his latest book. He's a prolific writer for those that follow him. And he talked about not only this case of the, uh, uh, donning the equipment, the equipment, but he talked about other cases, including parking lots and other things where he kind of did extrajudicial investigations that wasn't in the record, wasn't in the briefs. 
And, and you know, a lot of people, as, as you already mentioned, have some issues with that, right? Because it's uh, like a jury going on the internet while the case is pending and finding out additional facts and circumstances. So He thought it was the most expeditious way to reach a result. He didn't want to waste the district court's time. You'll hear us talk a lot and you'll hear if you listen to oral arguments where ju- a judge or justice will ask a question of an advocate and they'll say, well, that's not in the record, especially the appellee, which is the job of the appellant is to create the record. And if the record isn't there, that burden and that that problem falls to the appellant. If it isn't in the record and it would help the appellant, too bad, so said, you didn't make the record. So you, they're supposed to be confined to the record. Judge Posner, not such a fan of limitation to the record. I'm going to go make my own record. And that's called right. extra record evidence. And that's generally viewed as verboten. Unless, of course, you're the former chief judge of the Seventh Circuit, in which case you get to do what you want. Right, because you're, like you said, the likelihood of being uh, going to the Supreme Court on these issues is is remote to nil. And, and one other thing is, it's also the benefit of having a lifetime appointment. It is, it is <laughs> for sure. With that, Pat, let's turn to the first case today: Katz versus Hearts. Last week, we covered a medical malpractice case, Gustanians, and discussed how fact-intensive and technical such cases are, and the difficulty of prevailing in medical malpractice cases. This week, in Katz versus Hearts. We have a legal malpractice case, and these two are difficult for plaintiffs to prevail on. Here, one of the justices was on the probate court previously, and she brought that experience with her to the argument. In fact, one of the advocates uh, specifically referred to that in kind of a snide way, I would say, and Pat will get to that in a moment. Uh, The appellate counsel, uh, as noted, made specific reference to it. Katz, the plaintiff claimed that a lawyer prepared a revised estate plan for the testator. The guardian was not the guardian yet without determining testamentary capacity, and that revised estate plan disadvantaged the guardian. The law firm had met with the mother and a different son than the eventual guardian. The guardian brought a legal malpractice claim against the lawyers in his personal and on behalf of his mother, although in oral arguments, the advocate for the appellant was looking at the briefs for the heading to verify whether that was in fact the case. Trial court dismissed the claims as time barred. The plaintiff argued that under Mitzias, versus Eiffel Corporation, it was impossible to know of the wrongdoing. The court seemed skeptical of that claim, but sympathetic to the argument that there was insufficient information available to begin the statute running. At one point, the appellee advocate used a Rule 23 case, and one justice said a colleague would rip up the briefs if the Rule 23 case was ever cited uh, in briefs. Uh, and we had discussed Rule 23 pad unpublished decisions in a prior episode as the rule of the week. Pat, tell us about the oral arguments in this case and the skepticism of the justices and harsh questioning from a very hot bench. Hot bench, uh, Dan, thank you, first of all. Uh, hot bench doesn't begin to describe this bench. Oh, my goodness. They were oh. on fire. Oh. Um, and uh, the uh, justices Mikva, Connors, and Harris were the panel. And uh, we've discussed Judge uh, Justice Mikva previously. Uh, Justice Connors, and this is important, used to be on the probate bench. And on two occasions, or at least two occasions, maybe three in this argument, she referred to her experience as a probate judge. Because one of the the reason why that came up is because I mentioned the record a moment ago. And she asked this, the advocate for the uh, appellee. So what evidence is there in the record of this, uh, of of this person's disability. He said, well, there really isn't any. She said, hold it. The reason why there isn't is because the procedure is this. Every single application for guardianship has to be accompanied by a medical uh, a note from a doctor or a medical report from a doctor. And those are then taken out by the clerk so they aren't in the record. That's the reason why it's not there. Okay. Right. Uh, with the what, diagnosis. Right, with the diagnosis. In this case, it was of dementia. And this is a situation where the the uh, the mother, she had two sons. It sounds almost like a King Lear type situation. She's got one son who uh, uh, who's who goes in, takes her to the lawyer. And the claim of malpractice by the lawyer is that he did not do a test of testamentary capacity to determine whether this woman could change her will. Now, she, there was no guardianship at that point. And the claim by the now guardian at some point, he first was the attorney. Uh, he had a power of attorney. We'll talk about that, how that plays into the issue in a, in a moment. He then ultimately became the guardian after being having the power of attorney. And he, 
they changed the the um, the estate plan to favor Leonard, the son who uh, brought him to this lawyer who didn't do this test of testamentary capacity. Very quickly, testamentary capacity is the ability of a person to know their bounty and the objects of that bounty. That is the people to whom they could give that bounty. This person, the claim is, didn't have the ability to know the their bounty and the objects. In other words, their son, their, their children, their other heirs, their potential people to whom they could give their money, their dogs, their cats, if the case may be. Um, and, 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 and allegations that the the lawyers had some duty, right, to uh, decipher this. Exactly. And, and and to do a test, and this lawyer testified at his deposition, he had no had, had no uh, procedure for determining testamentary capacity, which the the comment that Dan's referring to is he he the app counsel for Appley is he said to Judge Justice Connors you may find this to be professionally offensive based upon your experience in the as a probate lawyer but that's not the issue here the issue here is whether this uh, this guardian knew or should have known of this conduct more than two years prior to the uh, the claim being filed although that's not actually the issue. The issue here is newer should have known under Illinois law for the purposes of this statute is, was he on inquiry notice? And the very interesting issue uh, is, does the statute run against a disabled person in a situation where they have a guardian? Now, counsel for the appellant conceded that in his personal capacity, the guardian statute had run. So I don't know where he's going and why they pressed that claim. He had his own claim for, for breach of testamentary um, expectancy. Uh, so I don't know where he's going with that claim. But he had other claims based upon uh, legal malpractice for preparing an estate plan that uh, doesn't reflect her testamentary capacity because she didn't have testamentary capacity is the claim. Now, prior to being the guardian, he, was, he had the power of attorney. Right. And the Rule 23 decision that Dan referenced – according to the counsel for Appalee, disputed by counsel for appellant, is that that case says that while you are in the capacity as a power, having a power of attorney, you, the statute, in other words, all the things the ward knows are imputed to you and the statute begins to run. And their argument is by the date he filed the guardianship, he knew or should, he knew or should have known number one, all that's required is that there was a wrong done and that you have an injury and that it was wrongfully caused. You don't have to know who done the wrong. You don't have to know what wrong they done. My very good English there. But they, you simply have to know that you had an injury and it was wrongfully caused. During that next two years, you are then to go out and investigate. Let's just say Judge Connors wasn't buying that. Not uh, at all. And, and, and she made it very clear. What cause of action was he supposed to file on this day, June 9th, 2017? And against says. Go ahead. I'm sorry. And Dan. against whom? And against whom? What was the? How could he have filed it? And counsel for the appellee conceded there was no way for him to know what the lawyer had done or not done. All inquiry notice means, and he said this very pedantically, but true. I've said these words before to judges who don't sometimes don't understand inquiry notice. The key word in inquiry notice is inquiry. You have to then begin to investigate. And in this case, they didn't get to take the deposition, apparently, in the guardianship proceeding until more than two years had run. And so they didn't get to ask the lawyer, what did you do or not do to determine testamentary capacity of this of the testator? And apparently he did nothing. <laughs> and that's their claim of legal malpractice. Now, whether that stands up, I don't know. Uh, maybe it does. Maybe it doesn't. doesn't sound good. It certainly didn't sound to good to Justice Connors. But that's a separate question. They don't. You don't have to know who you can sue. You have to simply know that you have an injury and that it was wrongfully caused. You don't have to know who you can sue, what theory you can sue them on. You got to start looking. They, in other words, they needed to look quicker. You got two years. The clock is running. Got to, got to, you know, you, you see all those little ads on the, on the TV for point, you know, you, there's, there's time limits that apply. Yes, there are time limits that apply. Start figuring it out. So you have so then he said their their way around this the appellee the appellant's way around this was this Mitzias versus Iflo case, which is a 2011 medical malpractice case, where it wasn't legal impossibility that prevented them from knowing of this injury. It was medical scientific impossibility. Nobody knew that the device was alleged that was allegedly caused the plaintiff's injury 
was defective at that time. And so that delayed them in being able to file the suit. And the court said, yeah, if you had no way of knowing, it was impossible for you to know, then you have, then you can, uh, the statute is told until you do that. Now, there's also issues in this case about waiver and whether they raise tolling and so, uh, some other sophisticated, but I think we've hit the, the broad points. I've written, uh, I wrote an article at the time about the Mitzias case. I'll link to that in the show notes case, if, show notes page if you want to take a look at that. Let's just say the court wasn't buying, Judge Justice Mikva in particular, wasn't buying the application of Mitzias. In fact, she said it on rebuttal. She said to counsel, I, I didn't understand how this case has anything to do with this. Uh, you may be right that they, maybe they weren't on inquiry notice, but what's Mitzias got to do with this? This is a very limited case. They're not trying to blow up the discovery rule. Come on, what, what, what's this all about? Um, and so it, it, this is a, it's a, um, it's a very interesting pro- professional liability case for a number of reasons. And, and as we ha- we talked about last week, where there there was some frustration by the advocate try in the uh, insurance cover the Evanston case with just not being able to get through to the justices what their view was of the policy. Here, there was just a, a, a very stark back and forth with Justice Connors about what inquiry notice is and what it isn't. Um, and some clear frustration by Justice Connors and some clear frustration by the advocate for the the appellee. It was unclear to me where Justices Harris and Mikva were on the inquiry notice issue. It seemed Justice Mikva understood. In fact, she said she understood the inquiry notice issue. She did. Um, Justice Connors was having none of it. Uh, and, and again, that seemed to be informed by her experience as a probate judge, uh, at least in part. Um, it, it'll be interesting to see how they um, how they come out on this, because the facts are plainly not favorable in a situation where you have a lawyer that didn't do the test that is arguably required. And you have a situation where you have this this damage as a, as a result. Uh, it's it's we'll 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 see. Uh, Dan, do you have anything else on this on this case? No, other than the, the the interesting thing for the appellant was he reserved eight minutes for rebuttal, and that that seemed like the I've never heard of anybody reserving eight minutes on a twenty minute argument uh, for rebuttal. Well, it ended up he had almost twenty or so on his initial argument right. because the justices were asking so many questions. Uh, and as a, from a procedural point, the first district in particular is very much a uh, free for all and very much a, in terms of both the time, as well as the method of questioning, they jump. It's, it's like the old Supreme court arguments only without the timer. They just keep going as long as they got questions and they'll give you more time. If they've got questions, it's essential because it's a very hot bench typically on in the first district, no matter which panel you get. It's oftentimes a very hot bench. They are there to get questions answered in the first district. That is not the case in other courts, but in the first district, they want answers to questions. Uh, uh, Justice Smith, when he has a panel, he has a very different style, as we'll talk about in a case. He he, he does, but they they but again, they're very hot. Uh, they are. They're, they're asking questions. They are. So with that, will we uh, we'll take a break and come back for our second case? We're back uh, on episode 10 of the Podium and Panel podcast with our second segment, Dan. And uh, this second case is a case called Zuniga versus Major League Baseball. And you may have heard about this case um, because this case involves a young lady who was struck with a foul ball at Wrigley Field. That never happens on the south side because we had the wisdom to put up netting. So that doesn't happen. Uh, anyway. Very true. And... Uh, but at this time, they didn't have netting yet up at uh, Wrigley Field. I'm not sure if they do now. I don't think they have full netting. So. And in keeping with our theme of justices bringing in their uh, experience, uh, Justice Lavin, the wonderful Justice Lavin, mentioned that he's a 40-year season ticket holder to uh, the White Sox and that he's never looked at the back of his ticket. And Justice Smith telling counsel for uh, Major League Baseball – the uh, the uh, the appellant that uh, the back of the ticket was in four point font, and he knew that because he took it as micro as magnifying glass. He could tell you the size of the font. Sounds a little extra record, but okay. Um, this is a case where, as I said, Mrs. Zuniga was struck by a uh, by a foul ball, and the she filed a lawsuit against Major League Baseball and the Chicago Cubs. 
uh, and she claimed that, or in response, they filed a motion to dismiss based upon an arbitration agreement that's referred to on the back of the ticket. And then there's a link to a fuller exp- uh, exposition of the arbitration clause online. And the trial court denied that motion to compel arbitration based upon uh, procedural unco- unconscionability. So the first thing to ask is, well, how the heck does a motion to dismiss get to the appellate court? And the answer is Rule 307. Rule 307 allows for the appeal of an, a denial or grant of an injunction, which the courts have held essentially a motion to de- a motion denying or granting arbitration, compelling or allowing arbitration is a denial or grant of an injunction, which is immediately appealable under Rule 307. Uh, with that, Dan, do you want to talk about uh, the oral argument and uh, kind of the more of the factual and legal issues that were presented? Sure. Thanks, Pat. And uh, at oral arguments, uh, a lot of time was spent by the bench discussing this font size. As Pat mentioned, Justice Smith said he had to use his triple magnifying glass. And so at one point, uh, counsel, when asked about the font size, uh, said, you know, it's not in the record that it's uh, font uh, size four. And Justice Smith said, I know it is. And and counsel, and he kind of had an interaction where uh, Justice Smith said, well, I, I know for certain it is because I, as I mentioned, I had to use my triple magnifying glass and that's four, size four font, which, uh, uh, you know, I don't know how it, scientific it, that is, but we'll take his word for it. Right. And then there was, there was uh, Pat mentioned procedural unconscionability. There's also substantive unconscionability. And a lot of time in oral arguments was talked about it, uh, that at the trial court, only the procedural unconscionability was discussed. Procedural unconscionability refers to the actual procedures taken uh, when entering into the contract. There was uh, discussions about alternatives that uh, could be in place for attendees to ballpark games where the ushers would have to read in every instance the total terms and conditions of entry. And anybody that's been to a sporting event, uh, when that was possible and when it might be possible again, such as the uh, Chicago Bears game, knows that the entry lines are already so long from the uh, massively intensive process they go through now to go through all items that come to the park. So procedural unconscionability has to do with leverage of the parties. It has to do with uh, the, the uh, actual negotiating power. And then substantive unconscionability refers to the unconscionability of the actual terms and provisions in a contract. And as, as I mentioned, Major League Baseball argued the lower court only considered the procedural unconscionability, but needed to take the second step and leap of looking at substantive unconscionability. When you listen to the oral arguments, if you do, the panel spent a lot of time on one of the issues uh, was that not only is the uh, actual arbitration provisions, as Pat said, uh, not really fully spelled out on the back of the ticket, but it refers you to a website where all the terms and conditions, including this four, uh, size four font or whatever, very small font, even on the uh, terms and conditions of Major League Baseball, talks about the actual arbitration provision. One of, one of the things that's contained within that provision is a seven-day waiver provision. Uh, that was at the website. And there was a lot of discussion, as in this case, where uh, the plaintiff was seriously injured by the ball that hit her, whether a seven-day waiver period was adequate or appropriate. The advocate for Major League Baseball was very uh, forceful, I think I would use the term, and using other uh, cases from Illinois and from the Seventh Circuit and from other jurisdictions that talked about six size, uh, size six font, size eight font, and one of the one of the discussions that came up uh, by the advocate for Major League Baseball was that even if uh, there was no opt out provision uh, or waiver of arbitration, that that's not necessarily required in these contracts. So that was one thing that they argued. They also there was a lot of discussion about uh, uh, one of the justices uh, was very uh, very much pushing back against uh, the Major League Baseball's uh, advocate. Uh, because what, one of the items that had to be uh, submitted to opt out of this arbitration was an account number. And she said, you know, this this plaintiff, many plaintiffs, they don't have an account number. They might p- pick up a ticket one time, or as Justice Lavin mentioned, 
many people are not the holders of the account. They would have no idea what the account number is. And so uh, there was discussion about that. The advocate for Major League Baseball responded to that line of questioning by saying, uh, if you don't have an account number, you don't have to uh, submit it. And uh, the justice was was pushed back very harshly saying, uh, it doesn't say that. It says, shall submit account number. And then again, the Major League Baseball advocate uh, pushed back by saying, look, you don't even have to have an opt-out. There's, that's not required as part of these contracts. There was a lot of, uh, uh, during oral argument, uh, as mentioned, he brought up uh, several cases. One was a, a tenfold pamphlet uh, that had eight-point font. The arbitration was buried. That was Best versus DirecTV, the same lines. And he said that that was a very informative case. Uh, one of the other things that Major League Baseball uh, mentioned during this whole uh, back and forth and arguments uh, was that uh, the Chicago Cubs paid for all costs of arbitration. And so that was a, a fairness thing from a substantive uh, unconscionability. Um, and, and so uh, just a lot of, of, of questions of, of the Major League Baseball advocate. I think that he got a harder line of questioning uh, than the plaintiffs in this case. Um, and, you know, she uh, very forcefully argued that these these arbitration provisions, nobody reads them, that, you know, it's not even on the back of the ticket in this case. Uh, one of the things that she argued was that, you know, there's this big talk about convenience of the parties and, and the size of the tickets. Um, and again, uh, anybody that's gone to a game in recent times, if you get your tickets from Ticketmaster for a concert or anything, you print out a full page sheet. And so there's there's some uh, back and forth about that. And, and uh, there was also, I guess, a, an Uber ad that took up a third of the back of the ticket. And she said, you, you could get rid of that ticket. I mean, Major League Baseball and the Cubs, right there, underlying piece would be somebody's got to pay for the cost of printing these tickets. We don't make enough money just on the seats, you know, the charge for the seat alone. So, uh, Pat, did I miss anything on this on this argument? No, you, you really covered the waterfront. I, I, I want to – the. This was a very high-profile case when it happened. Uh, there was uh, uh, because it was shortly after this that the Major League Baseball instituted the requirement to put these uh, put these netting these nettings up. And this was, I think, at a time when the Cubs had gotten rid of when they had expanded the uh, stands into where the uh, bullpens the quote the bullpens used to be up up the right and left field lines and then move the bullpens underneath the underneath the outfield stands and so then they instead of having players there they put fans there and I think this is one of the areas where this lady was sitting the other point that one of the justices raised is that or certainly one of the advocates raised and the justices seem to be sympathetic to is this lady got hit in the head with a ball she was in no condition to send anything to anybody within seven days um and you can see the pictures online. If you Google it, you can see, you know, she, she was, she had a neck brace. She got hit. I mean, she got, she got whacked with a baseball that, 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 yep. that leaves a mark that hurts. Um, that's a substantial injury. One thing that didn't get talked about is that the waiver for a batted ball or a broken bat is still in the terms and conditions of the ticket. Right. So they want to so so they have the arbitration clause but even if they let's suppose the the court affirms and it seems like they're going to affirm that this is procedurally or, yes. or substantively unconscionable a little preview there folks uh is they're then going to argue that there's still a waiver because it's an assumption of risk that a, ba- a ball or a bat or something is going to fly into the stands. Uh years ago I was at a Cubs game and uh I forget which uh, who uh, one of the players bats broke in batting practice and a shard of the bat ended up about 20 feet up in the netting right behind home plate. And if that thing had gone into the stands and I actually have a picture of it, of the, of the grounds guy going up on the ladder and reaching out to try to get the thing, OSHA violations all over the place, trying to get this bat out of the thing. Thankfully it went into the netting and not into some poor soul sitting on the sitting, sitting, uh, watching the game. Uh, so yeah, there's, Wrigley Field is is up the lines is a really really dangerous place to be if you're not paying attention, which is why I usually sit in the grandstand uh, there in particular. And I, I did look, and I guess all 30 uh, stadiums last year before the season started agreed to extend the netting, 
it was a year where not many fans were in the ballparks or none, but you know, I was there at, at, at a Wrigley game on the first base sideline, probably about 15 rows back uh, several years ago with the Chicago Bar Association record, the magazine, as, as our annual outing. And the editorial manager at that time, his partner, uh, was sitting right in front of me and, and a foul ball came and it ricocheted off somebody's hands and it, and it rolled up in his lap and and caused testicular damage. And believe it or not, uh, Wrigley would not even pay for the ambulance to uh, Northwestern because, again, to Pat's point, they have these waivers in there and were adamant. And and uh, the, uh, the editorial manager came back to get his stuff and Andy Freinesters were telling him to wait until play had uh, stopped and he was adamant. I mean, it was a, a horrible situation and uh, there, there is danger. There's danger at, at, at hockey games, not as much, but, but baseball well, games. They've put, they put netting there too. After the, after it, took, it took the death of that young girl for them to put the nettings up at the ends of the, uh, in, the in the hockey games. Right. Um, one other thing on the ticket size, Dan mentioned, you know, you get the printout. Well, mo- I, I'm, I'm, I'm a, I have a partial season ticket package to the White Sox. All my tickets come online. They're on right. my app. I, right. I, I, I'm sure I've waived all kinds of rights. I have no idea about. Um, I, I'm still going to the ball game, but the the most people, you know, you're using your you're using the app. When I send it, if I send tickets or buy tickets for a client or for a friend or I transfer them to somebody, they're on the app. They're, they've got the the VR or the QR code or whatever, and, and that's how you're getting into the game. And I'm sure the terms and conditions are there somewhere for someone to find, but no one's looking right. at them. Right. Uh, but there, there it, they are. As Justice Lavin said, 40, 40 years and he's never looked at him. Nobody has. And with that, we'll take our second break and be back with our third segment. Hey, Podium and Podcast listeners. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can drop us a line at Podium and Panel Podcast at gmail.com. Please let us know about cases you're interested in or guests you'd like us to interview. You can also follow Dan and I on LinkedIn, as well as the Podium and Panel podcast page on LinkedIn. We look forward to hearing from you. And we're back for our third segment on episode 10 of the podcast. As two insurance lawyers, as we've said before, uh, we for the second straight week have an insurance coverage case. This one is American Bankers Insurance Company versus Robert Shockley Jr., which raises issues of how far the premises of an insured can be extended. And American Bankers, one of the judges grew up on a horse farm, and so continuing this personal experience of the uh, appellate court judges, uh, we had somebody that actually grew up on a horse farm and so had knowledge of what uh, activities would be on and off site. That issue was a farm owner's policy here that was issued by American bankers. Uh, the facts and the action are that a case was removed from the Circuit Court of Cook County to the Northern District of Illinois, I, probably on on uh, diversity grounds, I would guess. I, I did not see why it was removed. The District Court Judge Gettleman granted motion for summary judgment on the grounds that this was not a CGL policy and that language at issue was that the liability insuring agreement provided for, quote, bodily injury caused by an occurrence and arising out of ownership, maintenance, or use of the insured premises or operations that are incidental to the insured premises, close quote. The insured premises were the insured's North Avenue premises and operated or used for farming purposes. The plaintiff's in the underlying action was injured when he was thrown from and run over by a golf cart that was driven by one of the insured's employees at the Barrington Hills Riding Center, more than 15 miles away from the premises, and it was there's a lot of discussion during oral arguments, as Pat will cover, about uh, why uh, they were off at the Barrington Hills Writing Center. Uh, Gettleman found that, unlike a standard CGL policy, the farm owner policy limits coverage to an express geographic location. And try as he might, he said, uh, Shockley, the plaintiff, and the underlying action cannot get around this limitation. And the court focused on the endorsement that included Kane County Fairgrounds as an additional insured. With that, Pat, do you want to tell us about the oral arguments and some of the skepticism of the justices or judges in this case? Before I do that, you mentioned Judge Gettleman from the district court uh, was the uh, trial court judge here. And we got a question this week. Thank you. uh, uh, That kind of asked about, you know, the 
some history about the judges and 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 asking you know are the liberal or conservative and things of that nature. Uh, Ju- Judge Gettleman was a Clinton appointee, um, so you can guess his politics. Notwithstanding that, um, he also has an obligation to follow the law, and and most judges and justices in these kind in cases involving statutory construction, insurance coverage, are textualists. They're going to look at what the text says. Right. Um, they're going to look at. The, they may look at as we. You, but judges and justices, you'll see that we use the different in, in the Illinois appellate court, they're justices and the in the circuit court is Judge Easterbrook is fond of scolding advocates who call him a justice. He says, no, we are judges. Um, so it turns out judges and justices are people, too. They they look at their personal experiences, which has kind of been the theme of this show. And I think it was Judge Kane, but it may have been Judge Flom. I, I couldn't tell. Um, said he grew up on a horse farm. He's like, you're insuring a horse farm. How could you possibly not know that they were going to be going around the place, going all over the place, uh, for showing showing horses, riding horses, trail riding with horses? You know, you're going to go off the premises. This is something that you do. Uh, And so, and then to bolster that position, they said, well, you have this endorsement, an additional insured endorsement for Kane County Fairgrounds. If you weren't going to be showing horses or doing some activities at the Kane County Fairgrounds, why in the world would Kane County Fairgrounds be an additional insured on a policy? Because in order to be an additional insured, there had to be under, underlying primary insurance that would have triggered an additional insured to be covered. Okay. Uh, and 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 so, th- again, this is a situation where the judges were drawing on their personal experience. And the judges really focused on what did the insurer know in writing the policy. And the endorsement was relied upon heavily by both counsel for the uh, insured as well as the justices in in criticizing what the insurer knew and the insurer's counsel. So hold it now. There's this, there's the the policy says what's covered. It's just the premises to which the insurance counsel, that's 57 pages into the, into the 62 page policy. And, uh, and and made a, a big uh, deal about the declarations that were typed specifically and that there was a box that said, if you do not want uh, general liability, check the box. Or, and again, box I wasn't checked. The policy, box wasn't checked. And he pointed to, but and, and that's an excellent point. It brings me to where I wanted to go next, Dan, and that's uh, he pointed to Hobbs versus Hartford, which is an Illinois Supreme Court case. Not the best site for him, as it turns out. Uh, because Hobbs versus Hartford is an underinsured motorist case and comes out of a line of cases involving stacking of underinsured motorist coverage. And the court said, yeah, you look at the deck page, and yes, that's informative, but you got to look at the policy as a whole. And in that case, there was an anti-stacking provision. And the court says the anti-stacking provision tells us as a whole, you don't go stack stack these things. And look to a case more recent, a case called Estate versus Clam, which in full disclosure was handled by my partner, Robert Chemers, which dealt with stacking of part of liability coverages. And in that case, the, the the law that has been developed is that if you have the policy limit or the, the available limits listed more than once on the deck page, then you, you add them up and that's the amount of poly- coverage you have. The problem in this case was there was, in the CLAM case, there were four policies or four, I'm sorry, four vehicles covered under this policy. And so they physically couldn't put the vehicles on one declaration page. It had to go on to second page. So they then labeled the next page as, what the coverage availability was for these four vehicles. And the and the trial court said, you got four vehicles, you got four coverages, you got $1.2 million in coverage on a 100-300 policy. They're coming to get me, Dan. I'm sure <laughs> the, 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 the podcast, we've, we've overstretched our bounds. Uh, right. The appellate court reversed and said, no, no, you only stack them twice because they only wrote it twice. The Supreme, the, uh, Supreme Court said, no, that's ridiculous. There's an anti-stacking provision, number one. And number two, it physically was impossible to put the vehicles on the page. Why do I mention all of that? Because an insurance policy is interpreted like any other contract. You interpret the thing as a whole. And the whole tells you, in this case, according to the insurer and according to Judge Gettleman, is that it covers a particular premises. Now, obviously, it, it, we'll see if what the insurer knew or should have known is the standard that the court applies uh, based upon both what that endorsement about adding the King County Fairgrounds as an additional insured or what uh, 
Judge Kane's or Flom's again. I'm not. I apologize. I can't. I couldn't tell which one it was. Uh, they're they're having li- grown up on a, on a horse farm uh, and having experience in the kinds of activities that you undertake when you uh, have a horse farm. Because uh, this is going to be dispositive of whether there's going to be coverage or not for the underlying uh, for the underlying lawsuit. And as we talked about last week, the duty to defend is broader than the duty to indemnify. And in this case, on the face of the complaint, if it was off the premises to be insured, they will may be able to get out. They did get out at the district court level on the duty to defend. Now, whether that uh, and, and if you get out on the duty to defend, there can be no duty to indemnify because, as we said, the duty to defend is broader than the duty to indemnify. Um, th- this is a it may not seem like the most exciting case, but it really points to the kinds of things that it, that judges look at in interpreting a contract, a policy of insurance, and trying to figure out what the intention was of the parties and what they were trying to do. Uh, and as we've said before, ambiguities, which really didn't seem to be the issue here, ambiguity. It did not. Uh, although it could be, if you want to say there's a tension between the endorsement. Uh, that the farm owner farm owners endorsement and the um, and the deck page, the argument coming back was we have to read them in harmony. And right. though it may say there was no CGL cover or there was CGL coverage intended, this limits what that coverage would be. That would and, be the and, argument. And, and there was some general liability coverage for if it happened on the premises, right? So that's one point. I was surprised American bankers didn't push back on the argument about the additional insured. Because it was a specific insured, it was Kane County Fairgrounds, which you could say, like you talked about earlier, this is for showing the horses and for uh, demonstrations. It's one specific thing, but this is the Barrington Country Club where this happened, and that's not an additional insured. It wasn't intended that these, you know, detours or uh, destinations other than the fairgrounds was contemplated to be covered by this policy. Yeah, it, it did, just simply because there was one additional insured off of the premises didn't mean they intended to insure horses uh, and golf carts the world over. It, it, it limited it to one particular place uh, for uh, presumably one particular kind of activity that would occur at the uh, at the King County Fairgrounds. Um, so we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens with that case. Uh, uh, and uh, with that, Dan, I think we'll move on to... Uh, to our prediction, sure to go wrong? I think that's right. Okay. So with the first one, we've got uh, Cats versus Hearts, the uh, legal malpractice case. Uh, Dan, are, are we? Uh, is this going to be an affirmance or are we going to have a um, – I think I know where Judge Justice Mikva is. I think I know where Justice Connors is. Not sure where Justice, Har- Just- Justice Harris is. I, I think that's right. And, and you probably know much better than me your insights in this case, just given your uh, Mitzius experience. And so do you think it's going to be reversed or upheld? I, the impression I get is just because they reverse here doesn't mean there's going to be a liability. I think that, I think the, the justice Connors may prevail in at least convincing justice Harris that this plaintiff should get a shot to figure out if he's got a claim. Now, that may not convince Justice Mikva, who seemed to be clear as to what she understood the inquiry notice was. Um, now, we've talked about before, there are many reasons why justices ask questions. Sometimes they do it to argue with one another. That may have been what Justice Mikva and Justice Har- Justice Connors were doing to try to convince Justice Harris. Right. It also could be they, that Justice Connors just wanted to beat up on the lawyer to send a message to the lawyer that didn't have the the what she thought was the appropriate uh, test for testamentary capacity. There's a lot of reasons why justices do things, which is why it's a dicey proposition to, and that's why we call it prediction sure to go wrong. Um, I'm going to go with uh, a reversal and say that, uh, a- a- although I expect a dissent from Justice Mikva, um, because she seemed to she seemed to buy the Appellee's uh, argument on inquiry notice, but I'm going to go with a uh, I'm going to go with a reversal. Dan, what do you think? I think that sounds right from listening to the oral arguments and from, like you said, uh, Judge Connors definitely had a, a viewpoint. I think Harris will be the, the key. And I, th- I think even if it's, a re- if it's reversed, I'm not sure you get the liability here. Uh, as we talked about, malpractice cases in any professional arena are hard to prove and be successful on ultimately. So I think it would be reversed and then there will be further deliberations about uh, whether – 
you know, inquiry notice was appropriate. The next case is Zuniga versus uh, Major League Baseball. I, I think baseball's got a problem here, uh, I, at I, least I, as I to arbitration. So. Uh, but I, and so I think we're going to see an affirmance here. But then we're just going to be back in the district, or the trial court, with uh, a motion to dismiss for <laughs> under the waiver provision, and then we'll find out whether that waiver is enforceable. So this may be Zuniga one. We may be at Zuniga two or three before we ever reach the merits of this case. Right. And and as Justice Smith said with the arbitration case last week, I fear we're going to see you again. I think he's going to see these individuals and these parties uh, several times down the line about various aspects. And, and, and understand the motivation. It's not just this case for Major League Baseball. Just It's not just this case for uh, for the plaintiff's lawyers. This is a broader policy because all if you if you Google uh, every single one of the teams has a web page with the arbitration agreement that's the same for all 30 baseball teams. Uh, this is going to set precedent potentially for the rest of the country as to how this is, and whether this is enforceable or not. It was interesting during the argument, you didn't hear them referring to other courts that have addressed this issue. If there were, I'm sure you would have heard about it, which leads me to believe this may be one of the first cases of its kind since Major League Baseball adopted this particular arbitration clause. Uh, so, so that's what the fight is really about: is about thirty different teams and thirty different uh, and 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 several different, obviously several different states as to how they're going to deal with this. That's what this fight is really about. It's very big. Uh, and then uh, American Bankers uh, versus Shockley. Um, I, I, I I think I smell reversal here too. Uh, even though I don't think it's correct, I think I, based on what I know, I, I, I think reversal is, is what to expect here. That, that's what I, the sense I got from the panel and the questions they raised, and, and I expect a reversal too. Uh, but ultimately, I, 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 again, I don't think American bankers, uh, you know, ultimately will be found to be liable. But uh, it'll depend on you know what when it goes back to Gettleman and. Uh, how that uh, all sorts out. And so with that, it brings us to our rule of the week, which is uh, Supreme Court Rule 315. Dan, why don't you tell us about about this very important rule? Sure. Rule 315 is the only Supreme Court rule that governs leave to appeal from the appellate courts of Illinois to the Illinois Supreme Court. And we may occasionally refer on the show to a PLA, which is a petition for leave to appeal, except for appeals as a matter of right in certain cases. The Illinois Supreme Court, like Supreme Courts of other states and the United States Supreme Court, has very broad discretion on what cases it will hear. The Illinois Supreme Court receives thousands of PLAs a year, but grants a very small percentage. Uh, the Illinois Appellate Court, uh, as Pat has talked about already a little bit uh, with the uh, Circuit Court, is essentially the final court of review for the vast majority of cases. There's been a significant drop in the number of cases taken by the court since the end of the death penalty. Uh, they take about half the number of cases as they did previously, and there were about 50 decisions last year. Pat, anything else on Rule 315? The court not only can take cases like uh, under petitions for leave to appeal, they can also issue supervisory writs. They can also, uh, which is a, a writ under the constant under the there are supervisory authority of the courts under the Illinois Constitution, very rarely granted. If they get a PLA, they can order. Many times there'll be discretionary appeals where the appellate court declined to take the case and they may order the appellate court or order the trial court to certify a question or to take an issue. Um, they can they have a great deal of authority um, in their supervisory role. And that's another way that they can dole out um, uh, procedural justice, so to speak, uh, beyond uh, uh, Supreme Court Rule 315. You will hear about... Uh, the shadow docket with regards to the Supreme Court of the United States. And there was a very good article I would commend to people in Slate on the uh, on the shadow docket this week and the role, the increasing role that it's playing. Uh, it's really grown up over the last half a decade or so in a, in a way that I think is rather troubling. Uh, it's that very has a, troubling. And, and, it's, it, and we'll talk about that some other time, but if you want to, uh, we'll link to that in the show notes. Uh, the Illinois Supreme Court, to its great credit, is extraordinarily transparent in what they do. You get these order lists 
that list their grant or denial or whatever they're doing on all of the cases. And it comes out four or five, six times a year. And it's got a list of hundreds of cases that they're ruling on, taking, denying, whatever it happens to be. Um, they have a website that lists all of their orders. They've collect, They've got a website that lists all of the all of the orders, the COVID orders from around the state, all hundred and some counties. So the the Supreme Court of Illinois is extraordinarily transparent, uh, and again, that's to its credit. Uh, but three fifteen is one way to get a case, not the only way, but one way to get a case to uh, the high court here in Illinois. Um, with that, we also, as I mentioned earlier, we got a question from one of our listeners, and we uh, thank. Uh, them very much for a question. It's it, it, and the issue w- uh, we wanted to address. We we addressed it a little bit. Was some information about the judges and the justices that uh, that and and more text about that. We've talked about how judges get selected or justices get selected to appellate courts in both the Illinois Appellate Court as well as the Illinois Supreme Court. I think the process for becoming an Ill, a, a Supreme Court justice and a justice of the seventh a judge of the Seventh Circuit is well documented it is. Um, the uh, um, and we'll talk about the position and the um, history of the judge the judges and justices as that becomes relevant to a particular case and I think we've kind of started uh, we've done that as we've gone along the way uh, if there are it, when that's when that's relevant, as it might inform a, the argument or the questions that a particular judge or justice uh, might ask. Uh, so I, we really appreciate the question, and we'll continue to answer those as as we get them. Agreed. And and with that, Dan, I think we're done for this week, and uh, we'll we expect to have a special podcast this week. We, we we'll we'll let you know when we have that scheduled, and then we'll be back next Sunday. With, a, uh, with another edition of the Podium and Panel podcast. Until then, have a great week. Take care. I'm Dan Cotter, and on behalf of my co-host, Pat Eckler, we thank you for listening and look forward to having you join us again. Please follow us on LinkedIn and read our columns in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. Please join us again at the Podium and panel. Each episode on the Podium and Panel podcast, we will cover several oral arguments and decisions in civil matters at the Illinois Appellate Court and Illinois Supreme Court, with the occasional coverage of SCOTUS and other appellate courts. The purpose of the podcast is to inform of developments that may affect business and are not to be considered legal advice. They do not create a lawyer-client relationship. Information on previous case results do not guarantee a similar future result. The opinions are their own and do not reflect those of the firms for which they work or their clients.